Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I think I've told you before that I love Christmas music. I just love Christmas music after Thanksgiving. Anybody else with me? Okay, I am really, really glad that so many of you are, are with me in that. I'm, I'm convinced there's no reason to play Christmas music before Thanksgiving. People in my household uh, disagree with that, though. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do in general when it, comes to, um, when it comes to music is to sing the wrong lyrics on purpose. For no other reason than it bothers Hillary and the boys. Badly. Have a jolly, holly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. I don't know if there will be rain, but have a cup of cheer. (laughs) And it drives Hillary and the boys absolutely crazy when I do that. Or how about this one? Have a hobby, lobby Christmas. And when you walk down the aisle, I implore you please ignore all the junk you see. You know, things like that. By the way, if you ever see me in a Hobby Lobby, it is because it is a great act of love that's taking place in that moment. I'm not by myself, I promise. I'm loving my wife by being with her (laughs) in that moment. I do that because it irritates Hillary and the boys. They get all worked up about it. They tell me, those aren't the words, Daddy. Hillary used to get worked up outwardly, But recently she tries to just ignore me, but I absolutely know without a doubt that it still bothers her, so I just keep doing it. Uh, Now, here's where I'm going with this, okay? And here's what made me think about that this week. Beyond the simple fact that multiple times this week I did that. I sang the wrong songs or lyrics to songs. I realized that this this week that this is really similar to God's standard for salvation and for entrance into heaven um, and how we oftentimes view that. Here's what I'm talking about. People oftentimes think that if they are mostly good, they're good to go. Um, In Hillary's world, me changing that one little word makes the whole song wrong. In God's world, anything less than complete righteousness makes us wrong. We're missing the mark. And as Paul is building this case for faith as he walks through the book of Romans, he knows that a crucial part of saving faith is understanding that saving faith cannot be earned and it cannot be achieved on our own merit. We're never going to be perfect. The only perfect human being to ever live was Jesus. That is why it is his perfect righteousness added to our account that gifts us salvation and gives us entrance into heaven and gives us a relationship with God. If we relied on our righteousness, then we would never make it. But if we rely on the perfect righteousness of Jesus, then we have everything we need for salvation. In the middle of Romans chapter 2, what Paul's doing, he really started this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And and what he's doing, he's outlining for us how much we miss the mark. He's going to get later to the justification and the sanctification and what it looks like for us to accept Jesus. But right now, he's focusing heavily on this condemnation, the condemnation. So let's jump in here. Romans chapter 2, verses 11 through 16 I'm going to read, and you read along in your Bible or on your phone, however you're reading God's Word today. 
For God, in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now let's start here by talking about verse 11, that one simple statement there, for God shows no partiality. We touched on this last week. For God shows no partiality. If a person shows partiality, what they're doing is they're giving some kind of favor to someone simply because of who they are. We've all seen partiality shown in in one way or another. But God doesn't show partiality. It doesn't matter who a person is. They're not going to be shown any level of favor over another person. God doesn't judge based on race or intellect or looks or charisma. He treats everyone the same. Now, this is not the only time in the Bible that we find this idea of God not showing partiality. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter realizes this. So Peter opened his mouth, it says there, and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now here's the story of what's going on there. Peter is realizing for the first time that the gospel is not just for the Jews. He was convinced before this that the gospel is for the Jew alone, not for the Gentiles, not for the Greek. But it's at this point in Acts chapter 10 where Peter realizes, wait a minute, I'm wrong in this. God doesn't show any partiality. The gospel is for everybody. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Colossians chapter 3 verse 25, Paul says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says that God impartially judges according to each man's work. So conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. God impartially judges according to each man's work. The fact that God does not show partiality is found right in the middle of this long thought where God is outlining for us Judgment that will come on people for this and this and this. Last week we talked about um, from from the first part of of chapter 2, really this idea of God's judgment on the hypocrite and on the hard heart and on the disobedient and on all who do evil. Okay, straight from God's word. That's what we talked about, verses 1 through 10 last week. Today is a continuation of those points. So you could even, in your notes, if you have those, you could write those in and then continue making three more points today. He's going to show us that God's judgment is firm on everybody who falls short of that righteous standard that I talked about a couple of moments ago. So today we're going to see God's judgment on those under the law. We're going to see God's judgment on those without the law. We're going to see God's judgment on the secret things, okay? So first, God's judgment on those under the law. God's judgment under all those under the law. And he's talking very specifically there about the Jews. He says in the last part of verse 12, All who sinned under the law, Jews, they are under the law, the Old Testament law, will be judged by the law. Now what we're going to find in this passage and in the next section that we're going to get to next time we're in the book of Romans 
is that Paul is saying God's judgment is harshest on those who know the truth, yet they ignore it. The Jews know the truth. They've had the truth revealed to them through the Old Testament law for for hundreds of years. Now, we live in a culture in which everything has got to be fair, right? Um, I hear this from my kids all the time. Just this week, one of my kids had to be pulled out of school to go to a well check um, doctor's appointment. Well, mom and dad both wanted coffee. So after the appointment, um, they go through the drive through at Starbucks. And this kid gets a hot chocolate from Starbucks. Okay? He went to the doctor. He needs a little bit of a treat, right? After school is over, what's the first thing he tells his brother? I got a hot chocolate from Starbucks today. And immediately, um, we got a very detailed speech about how that wasn't fair, that the one kid got hot chocolate and the other one had to stay at school, no matter the fact that the one kid had to go to the doctor, it's just not fair. I heard that statement multiple times. It's just not fair. Everything's got to be fair, right? Anything but fair, according to the standard of the individual person, is, is unacceptable. You know, God's nature doesn't allow him to be anything but fair and just. Kind of going back to that, there's no partiality with God. He is perfect in all his ways. But his judgment will be sharpest on those who know the truth but don't practice or live the truth. The Jews, in this case. And Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 12 in the form of a parable. Um, He says the servant is left in charge of the household and and that servant has a choice. He can be faithful to what he's given or he can be unfaithful. And here's how Jesus wraps up that parable. The The words will be on the screen for you so you can read along. But verses 47 and 48, Jesus says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Then he says those words that that we oftentimes remember. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. All right, so let's go back here for just a moment to the Jews who lived under the law. They had the truth of God right in front of them. They knew more about God and they knew more about his plans and his will and his character and his nature than anybody else. They knew his righteous standard of holiness. Yet the head knowledge never translated to life change. And when the day of judgment comes, theirs will be greater for it. Pick up reading in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not the hearers who will be justified, who are, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. You know, man, I can't, I can't really help but think that there's a lot of people in a lot of churches all around the world who hear and know uh, the truth of God, and they know the gospel. They could, they could quote back the gospel to you. They probably sit in churches periodically, maybe even weekly. They leave thinking, man, what a great sermon that was, or man, what a horrible sermon that was sometimes. I do that sometimes. They can quote scripture. They know how to use all the good terms and say the right thing. They're the most religious people that you would ever meet. But at the end of the day, the only impact that those things have on their life, that the gospel has on, this li- on their lives, 
is on their brain. And it never translates into genuine repentance and faith in Jesus alone. And they never truly submit their lives to Jesus' lordship. That's what Paul's really going to address heavily in the next passage. What he's going to do is he's going to tie what we just talked about here, beginning in verse 12 and then verses 13 and 14. He's going to tie all that together in the next passage that we get to another time. But he's confronting this double life that these people are living. It doesn't make sense. When a person knows the truth, they're going to be judged more harshly for having known it. But then in this passage, there's also the distinction between those under the law, so the Jews, and those without the law, the Gentiles. So let's talk about, for a few moments here, those without the law. First part of verse 12, for all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Before I go any further, that word perish means eternal death. It's not simply a physical death. It's an eternal death, eternal separation from God. Um, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Paul uses that very same word right there, the word perish. What Paul's saying is just like the Jew, the Gentile is under the judgment of God. Hearing and knowing the law doesn't save a person. But by the same token, not submitting to God outside the law is just as spiritually deadly. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have their law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. This really goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, when, in which we, we talked about this idea of general or natural revelation and specific revelation. General revelation is what we can know of God from his creation and the simple fact that he has written it on the heart of every human being that there is a God. You have to go against the grain of of nature to deny that there is a God. And sadly, much of our world does just that. But Paul's making the point here that the Gentiles didn't have the law the way the Jews did. They didn't have the specific revelation, but they still had the ability to, by nature, do what the law requires. And thus, they are a law to themselves, showing that the will of God is written on their minds and on their hearts. Now, I want to see if we can break this passage down a little bit, because it's really confusing. Anybody else confused as they read through that? What in the world are we talking about here? I want to break this down. I'm going to use four words here, okay? And these are words that come from John MacArthur as he's preaching on this, on this passage, or writing on this passage. It's four C words. First of all, you've got the word creation, all right? Creation. And this is four reasons for condemnation. Like, why is it that the world is condemned? Number one is creation. We've already touched on this a little bit. But God's creation condemns because God has written himself into creation. You don't have to look very far to see God. I believe that we live in one of the best states in the nation. And I believe we live in the best place in the state where we don't have to go very far to see the mountains. We also don't have to go very far to see the beach, to see God's creation. Mankind is condemned because creation is written into the very fabric of everything that we see around us. How can you say that there is no God? Second word is the word conduct. The word conduct. There's a lot of really, really good people in this world, Um, people who are loving and caring, who go out of their way to help someone. But those good works 
are nothing but testament to the fact that they had knowledge of God written in their hearts to cause them, to push them to good works. If a person dies without having accepted the only way to saving faith, which is is Jesus, then their good works are actually a witness against them on the day of judgment. Why did you do the good works? It could be asked. Why did you do the good works? Who planted the ability to do those good works inside of you? God did. All good and perfect things come from God. Just the fact that you can do good works is condemning in itself because he is the originator of good. It all points back to him. Everything good points back to him. So we are condemned even by our good conduct. Number three, conscience. It's the word conscience. We read in the middle of verse 15 there that their conscience also bears witness. Conscience. If you think about conscience, okay, this is, a, this is an instinctive, built-in sense of right and wrong. We've all been there before, right? It's not like we have to learn, per se, in the moment what is, what is right and wrong. It's instinctive. It's a built-in sense of right and wrong. That is our conscience. And that conscience, that built-in sense of right and wrong, activates guilt. Uh, MacArthur tells the story of a tribe in remote Africa that had an unusual but very effective way to test to see the guilt of an accused person. So is this person guilty or not? What they would do is they would take a group of suspects and line them up, and the, and the tongue of each person <clears throat> would be touched with a hot knife. Yeah, I thought I read that, and I thought, no, no, you're not my tongue. <laughs> but the tongue of each person would be touched with that hot knife. If saliva was on the tongue, the blade would sizzle, but it would cause very little pain. But if the tongue was dry, the blade would stick and create a vicious, searing burn. The tribe knew that a sense of guilt tends to make a person's mouth dry. And a seared tongue, therefore, was taken as proof of guilt. The making of such a dry mouth, of course, was the work of the conscience. The built-in sense of right and wrong activating guilt, and that guilt then pointing to condemnation. The simple fact that we have a conscience is condemning in itself. Paul continues here. We see the word contemplation. He says at the end of verse 15 that their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Contemplation is thinking intentionally about what to do about something. If if you're describing somebody contemplating, you you, you think of somebody who's really thinking, right? They're contemplating what to do. They're thinking about what to do. In this case, the guilt that we just talked about has to be thought through and decided on. What am I going to do with this? What am I going to do about it? Every person has got to decide that. And it's at that point of contemplation that a person either turns from God or turns to seek after God. What am I going to do with the guilt that I feel, that I know that I have, turn to God or turn away from God. 
In a moment, I'm going to wrap all this stuff up, I promise, okay? But then here's what we find in verse 16. We find God's judgment on the secret things, on the secret things. Verse 16 says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is not Santa Claus where he knows where you've been sleeping, knows when you've been sleeping, knows when you're awake, knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. It's a whole lot more serious, a whole lot more serious than that. And honestly, it's going to be a little bit of a scary thought. God doesn't just look at our outward deeds because we can put on a really good show in front of other people. We can impress them with our knowledge of the Bible or our prayers or our religiosity. But God knows every secret thought that we have and private sin that we do. He knows the hidden prideful motives. Even when we outwardly serve him, what's the motive of the heart? He knows that. He knows the lustful glance that nobody else sees. He knows the click of the mouse on your computer, even late at night when nobody else is around. He sees the seething anger in our hearts, even when we camouflage it really well. Nothing will escape his penetrating gaze on Judgment Day. You know, uh, Acts chapter 17 tells us that God has fixed Judgment Day, that it's coming. He knows when it's going to be. If we believe that, then we better be ready. If we don't believe that, it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. There's going to be a day of judgment for every single human being. And and when that day comes, the end of verse 16 says that the judgment is going to be carried out by Jesus. So the one who gave everything, the one who died on our behalf will be the one judging on that day. Let me see if I can wrap this up for us here today, okay? And leave us with some clarity about how all this impacts us and how we move forward with it. Charles Spurgeon was preaching on this passage, and he argued that if we do not preach the coming judgments and the wrath of God, we do not preach the gospel at all. He says we would be like a surgeon who didn't want to tell his patient that he is sick. He hopes to heal him without his knowing that he's sick. So he flatters him that he is well, and the man refuses the cure. Such a doctor would be a murderer. And so are we. If we do not warn people about God's impartial, certain judgment of our every secret and then point them to the good news that Christ offers forgiveness to repentant sinners as their only hope. Since we've been talking about this idea of God's judgment all through chapter 2, and we're not done, we have some more to go next time we're in Romans. As we've been talking about this, we're learning about the judgment of God and learning that it is going to come at some point Spurgeon says it's like we would be like murderers to not communicate that to people who desperately need it. We live in a culture in which sin has become mistakes. God's righteous wrath is avoided and any any reference to it is avoided. His judgment is thought of as a kangaroo court in which everybody's going to get off easy. The truth may hurt, but the truth, even in its pain, is going to set a person free. Don't avoid or ignore the truth. Point to the gospel as the only true hope for mankind. Do it in love, but don't avoid the truth. Not long ago, I had um, someone who's not a part of our church who came, and we had a very meaningful conversation. 
And, um, and they were very, very burdened about the fact that, that in their church, the word sin is not used anymore. It's mistakes. Um, it's God's going to be happy with you no matter what. But you cannot have a holistic view and understanding of God's word if you discount the righteous wrath and judgment of God. Think with me for a moment about your own life, okay? And, and think about a tree that's been standing up for decades. You walk by the tree, you, you, um, you, you, you look at the tree, the trunk looks really, really healthy. But then you look up and you realize, oh, those limbs are dead. They're not, they're not supporting any kind of life anymore. The trunk looks, very, looks fine, but, but it's clear the limbs are dead. And if you know anything about trees, you know that the problem is not in the limbs. Those are just an outward sign of a different problem. So you cut the tree down, and inside the trunk, you see the real problem. Even though the trunk looked healthy, now that it's down, you can see that there is rot on the inside of the trunk. Now here's why the gospel, here's why the good news of Jesus is absolutely necessary. It's because we were all born rotten to the core with no hope of saving ourselves. Only Jesus can save us. You know, the, the natural progression of a tree is that it is healthy and then dies, right? The natural progression of a human being spiritually is that they are dead, but God brings them life. Dr. Christian Barnard was the first doctor to ever perform a human-to-human -human heart transplant. He's from South Africa. After his second successful transplant surgery, the patient wanted to see his old heart. So the doctor took him to a cabinet, pulled out a jar with his old heart in it. He was the first guy in the history of the world to hold his old heart. According to the story, the man said, so this is what was giving me so much trouble? He handed it back to the doctor, turned away, and left it, never coming back to it. That's what Paul's encouraging us to do, to realize we need a new heart, to embrace the gospel deep in our soul so that God gives us that new heart. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this. He says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, saying you are sorry, realizing you have been on the wrong track, and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor, that is the only way out of the hole. This process of surrender is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than eating humble pie. It means killing a part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. In Jesus' words, it means dying to yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. That is repentance. So I just simply ask, have you done that? If not, then today can be the day of salvation for you. Some of you have been treating Judgment Day like the kangaroo court that I referred to earlier. And it's time to stop. Quit flirting with sin. Quit thinking that you've got plenty of time to get your life right. We don't know the day or the hour. We have no idea how long God's going to leave us on this earth. It's time to surrender. To throw the white flag and tell God, I am ready to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ.
In a couple of moments, we're going to sing together. And I just want to encourage you, if the Holy Spirit's doing anything in your heart, sometimes it means something when you leave your seat and come forward to kneel in prayer. If the Holy Spirit's working on your heart, you have that opportunity to do so. So even as I pray and as we begin to sing, if the Holy Spirit's working, come kneel before our great God and let him work. Father, we thank you. Father, we thank you because you have chosen to tell us what is hard. That, Father, your judgment will come on anyone who is not called on the name of the Lord. Every wicked thing in this world must be torn down. Father, every evil thing must be torn down. Every wicked and evil thing in our lives and in our hearts must be torn down. So, Father, would you show us what it looks like to throw that white flag of surrender and give it all to you and say, I want you to be Lord of my life, you alone. Father, we love you, but we only love you because you first loved us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. And it's in his holy and precious name I pray, amen.